Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to our new episode, episode number five of season six of the Thought Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, the 23rd of May, and yes, as I had promised, it's only a week since we launched our last show, and this week we are going to present you a very special guest here. It is John Michael Greer. We're going to speak about him a little bit more just in a moment. My name is Rudolf. I am your host, as always, and it's a great, great pleasure for me to welcome you on this show. If you want to know a little bit more about the Thoughts Hermes podcast, because you might be new to this show or you might want to discover previous episodes and what we all do here well please go to our website it's sothermes.com that's t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s.com and there you'll find all the show notes all the episodes that we have launched so far it's more than 80 now and you can find a lot a lot of very very interesting talks with interesting people from the western occult and esoteric traditions Right, and while you're there, why not sending me some feedback? I'd love to hear from you. It will be uh, either an email, which you can send to info at thoughthermes.com, or on the website, you'll find voicemail, which sends your voice directly here to me. And you can also send me a message through a contact form. Of course, there's always Facebook and Twitter where we are present, and you can also send me a word from there. This podcast also needs your support and I am really thanking all of you who are supporting this podcast. Every week there are a few little donations and of course there are the patrons and well if you want to be a member of the patrons of the Thoughts Hermes podcast please go to patreon.com look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast or to make it simpler, go on the website thoughtshermes.com and you'll find right away on the first page a button and become a patron on Patreon there. If you want to do a single donation, that's also very easy. Also on the website, there is that donation button. And I thank you in advance for considering that because this podcast costs like all the podcasts to to produce it costs a little bit of money and well it would be nice if you helped us with that right so um this was our little usual entry uh, thoughts and um, i also want to say again what i already said last week and two or three people have already reacted to that um 
Many of you out there are maybe musicians or know somebody who is, and many of those musicians are also interested in the occult and produce some music that might have some relation to what we talk about here or just is really good music that fits our subject. So if you are a musician like that, or if you want to tell me about somebody who is and who might be happy to give us some music for the show, do let me know. Also send me a message because it's always very interesting. And I'm still considering on doing something that I have done in the very early times of the Thought Hermes podcast. Again, promote occult art on the website. But for that, I need your interest. And I need to see really that you go on the website and have a look at it. So before I restart that idea, and I have one or two friends who will support me with that, but do let me know if that is of any interest to you. You can also say, no, it's not. But I need to know if there is something that you would consider going to the website and looking on occult art and read about the artists that I present to you there. Do let me know. Okay, let's start with some music. And well, there is three pieces of music as always, but the three of them are all three really very, very different. And all three of them, of course, have something to do with our guest here today, John Michael Greer. I don't think I need to introduce him. Um, I will do a little bit of that anyway, just after that piece of music. But just so far to let you know that he is from the American West, from the Seattle area. And he always, he told me that in earlier times when we talked, he always loved the music of Richard Wagner because, of course, Seattle has a great opera tradition and a big tradition on the music of Richard Wagner. So, well, this is a bit unusual. We had Wagner once here on the show already with Thomas Carlson. We did some Parsifal. But now, um, well, of course, all those pieces by Wagner are a bit long. And there is that great American conductor, well, long time dead, I'm afraid, uh, Leopold Stokowski. And he made out of Wagner's music some symphonic pieces where there is no singers, no voices. You might not like that, but there is really just the orchestral music. And if you listen to that, you really think it's like from some great fantasy film that has been produced last year. So um, therefore, I chose to play something from the opera The Rheingold uh, by Richard Wagner for you. You all know I'm an opera guy, don't you? Okay, so um, this is what you get today. But the piece, the symphonic piece that Leopold Stokowski created out of that music is called The Entrance of the Gods. It's about eight minutes, so it's not short, but if it's too long for you, you have those marks on the podcast. You can always jump to the next marker and continue from there. But you should consider listening to that. It's eight minutes of great symphonic music. The Entrance of the God by of the Gods, sorry, by Richard Wagner in that rearrangement by Leopold Stokowski. And we hear the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra. All right, enjoy the entrance of the gods. Thank you. 
Entrance of the Gods from the opera The Rheingold by Richard Wagner in that musical arrangement for orchestra only by Leopold Stokowski and you were listening to the Bournemouth Orchestra and I hope that you really enjoyed that. It's great music and we do it also a little bit in favor of our guest today, John Michael Greer. John Michael Greer, I don't think I need to introduce him. He has produced so many wonderful books. He is such an interesting guy to talk to. And he has such a huge, huge knowledge. And on top of all that, well, you, you realize I'm a fan, I admit. But on top of all of that, the way he writes is really great. And don't forget, he's also a fiction writer sometimes. You people out there might not even know that, but he has really written some interesting fiction, especially lately, some Lovecrafty type of um, of books. So we'll speak about all that in a moment in that interview, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy. Honestly, I have completely forgotten in the last few episodes that in in season five, I had started to do something which many of you told me they quite liked. I always started to read a little excerpt from one of the books by the author that is our interview guest in that in that show. And well, I think I should come back to that. And so I, I will start with it here today again. I'll read you just before the interview. Now, I'll read you a little excerpt, a short excerpt from John Michael Greer's latest book, which we are going to be talking about in the interview. That book is called The King in Orange, and its subtitle is The Magical and Occult Roots of Political Power. We like to think, most of us, that we live in a world that makes rational sense. The dominant narratives of the industrial world portray the universe as a vast machine governed by rigid deterministic laws in which everything that will ever happen could be known in advance, if only we could just gather enough data. Our political expectations are much the same. We elect candidates because they claim to be able to make the machinery of representative democracy do what we want it to do. And the mere fact that things never quite manage to work that way never seems to shake the conviction that they will, or at least that they should. It's all a pretense, and we know it. The reason we can be sure it's a pretense is that when some part of the world misbehaves in a way that won't allow the fantasy to be maintained, a great many of us respond with rage. We aren't baffled or intrigued or stunned. We are furious that the universe has seen fit to break the rules again. And of course, it's that again, stated or unstated, that gives away the game. We know at some level that the rules in question are simply a set of narratives in the heads of some not very bright social primates on the third lump of rock from a mid-sized star nowhere in particular in a very big universe. Most of us cling to the narratives anyway, since the alternative is to let go and fall free into a wider and stranger world where we can't count on being able to predict or control anything. Sometimes, though, the pretense becomes very, very hard to maintain. And in case you haven't noticed, we are living in one of those times. 
Okay, that's the beginning of the introduction of that really great book. And of course, it's a book on magic, but on a very special type of magic. Well, I won't keep you much longer. We are going to go and meet John Michael Greer now. And um, well, before I forget, of course, in about half an hour, a bit over half an hour, we will be back here and we'll play another piece of music for you. Okay, so, and now, here is John Michael Greer. Here comes the interview. It is a great, great pleasure here tonight to have somebody for me and I think for all of you out there really special on the line here of Thoughts Hermes podcast, uh, John Michael Greer. John Michael, hello, good evening. Good evening, thank you for having me on. Well, it's really great to have you. To be honest, this podcast is now four years old, and I think we were already in touch in general before even I started my podcast. And now, finally, finally, uh, we came together for this. Um, And I must say that there are so many, many interesting things I read about you from you, your books at first and your books on the occult, of course, but also your books on all kinds of different subjects, uh, sustainability, et cetera, et cetera. Also politics lately, we're talking about that towards the end of the show, probably. And then the Arcturid report and now Echosophia, your blog, your actual blog. And it's always fascinating. Um, and I always wonder how, did that all start? Because somehow there are so many different things you write and know things about, but at the same time, they seem all in a way really linked. Now, I wonder what did cause all that to start? Is it, was it your school? Was it your parents? Was it just your personal interest that came out of nowhere? How did it all start, John Michael? Um, well, I'm sorry to say that it was not my schools. Um, I had a normal American public school education, which means practically no education at all. I'm mm. afraid our, our schools over here are pretty dismal. Um, I and my my parents my parents are well. My dad is a very nice person. Uh, we don't have to go on from there. But mm. no, it really it was a matter of growing up in the in the American suburbs. In the 1960s and 1970s, where I was being presented by the media, by the schools and everything else, with this plastic one-dimensional version of what life is, what the world is, how everything works. And I looked at that and said, come on. <laughs> A, this is, this is boring. B, it's not true. And so, so you know, there, there was that, that initial challenge from, uh, from childhood on. Here is this palpable tissue of lies that I mean fed by the media and by my society, what's behind that? Mm-hmm. Now, I, it did not hurt that I have Asperger's syndrome. Um, I have right. that particular oddity of, of um, the nervous system, which causes me to have um, more neurons available for um, certain kinds of, of you know, cognition and um, mm-hmm. none at all for things like figuring out what other people are thinking and feeling. It's mm-hmm. not my strong mm-hmm. suit. Mm-hmm. Um, but like so many people with Asperger's, I, I had intellectual interests early on. I was rather a loner, rather solitary, very much into books. We, we said socially inept bookworm back before they had the, the official diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so my approach to things was to try to figure things out, to get books, to read, to pay attention, to study, to go, what's going on here? Um, that led me to first 
to um, an interest in everything that was that belonged in the category of rejected knowledge. All the all the things that where everyone just said, well, that's not true. Whether it was occultism, whether it was parapsychology, whether it was monster lore. I was an expert in werewolf trivia by the age of twelve, and um, so, so just just this this totally random whatever I could get search for for things that were weird enough to be true. Mm-hmm. And um, that led me to occultism. That led me right. to, to the practice of occultism, which I started um, in my teen years. Mm-hmm. And th- through that lens, not just taking occultism in the kind of simplistic sense as, ooh, here are these neat powers, but mm-hmm. what does it mean about the universe if these things are true? And what actually is going on when you do a working and things happen? What are the implications of that? Right. And so it just kind of just kind of one thing to another where what started out as as a set of unanswered questions turned into gradually a set of insights that I could follow out in, in many different directions, as you said, looking at politics, looking at society, looking at the industrial, the future industrial society, looking at economics, looking at um, Donald Trump, looking at what, what have you, all of these things and say, okay, there is a pattern that connects. There is a structure of ideas and insights here that actually makes sense of all these things. And the mere fact that most people consider it to be incomprehensible or, or simply wrong, that just adds to the fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fascinating. But also, I mean, still, you have to you have to start asking. Many people are confronted with those things that are illogical or not true or whatever, but not everyone starts having the reaction. Well, I have to look behind that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I was just lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we were because you did start looking behind that. Um, well, great. And then um, but at some point now, let's stay with your cult for a moment, because this is a podcast that talks a lot about that. But we're going to mm-hmm. expand a bit later. And um, when did you start working with groups? Because, I mean, you were quite active for a long time in mm-hmm. groups mm-hmm. and you are a specialist on Golden Dawn, etc. Uh, where, where did that come from? Okay, that came in rather late uh, because, again, as somebody with Asperger's syndrome, social interactions were not my strong suit. Well, that's why I'm and, asking exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for for many years, I was I was a solitary practitioner. I got books. I got mm-hmm. um, what well, this was before the internet, and so I just mostly I got books and I practiced and I kept detailed notes and so on. Mm-hmm. And then um, all, all all this time, life was happening. I went to college for a while. I left without a degree. I got married. Um, all the usual things happened, and then I ended mm-hmm. up going back to college in the, in 1991. And okay. it was while it was while I was at college in 1991 at the University of Washington in Seattle that I met my first teacher in these subjects. Um, and he's still alive, and I don't think he wants his name to be brooded about, so I will not mm-hmm. leave him. We'll just say my first teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but through him, I learned a, a lot more about things. Just he he had an understanding of the philosophical dimension behind this stuff. That so right. that was my first sort of interpersonal interaction. Other than the fact that my wife and I were, are both practitioners, and so we worked together to some extent. Mm-hmm. And it was it was around that time also that I got involved in. Um, what in America we call fraternal orders, um, friendly societies yes. is a British term. I'm not sure what you call them over in Europe. But <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> yeah, Freemasons, etc. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Freemasons are, 
I mean, I don't think I don't think we have anything other than the Freemasons. Well, actually, I mean, there there are a few others that were imported, but yeah, sure. um, but yeah, the thing, one of the things that, that a lot of people don't know outside of even in the United States these days is that there were hundreds of these things. The Freemasons yeah. were just the famous ones. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're the ones that everyone talks about. They're the ones that everyone gets paranoid about. Yeah. Um, I ended up encountering and then joining an outfit called the Independent Order of Odd Fellows. Right. And yes, you know, a highly silly name, but it was it's an old fashioned fraternal order. It has yeah. initiations, it has all the use it has its own symbolism and so on. It's not it's rather different from Masonry other than just sort of the general outline. And so I got involved in the odd fellows and I found that I could work very well in that. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know, maybe it's maybe it's because um Things are very structured within a lodge. You know what you're supposed to say and what you're not supposed to say. It's much less freeform than ordinary social interaction. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. Whatever it was, I, I landed on my feet in the Odd Fellows. I got very heavily involved there. And I learned a great deal about how lodges operate there. And then I later became a Freemason. I also became a member of an, another American order called the Grange, mm-hmm. which has agricultural symbolism. Um, and... All of these, all of this stuff got me got me very familiar with the lodge system and how it works. I founded a magical lodge in Seattle, and w- was active in that until my wife and I left Seattle in 2004. Mm-hmm. And in the process, somewhere in there, let's see, it was 1994. I ended up joining um, the Order of Vardzovites and Druids. Now that was mostly a correspondence course in those days. Certainly right. in Seattle, I, there were there were a handful of people I knew who were involved in it. They they did the initiation ceremony for me, which was nice. But it was mostly a self study thing. I, I did that program, and I finished it. I started looking around for other interesting opportunities. I stumbled across the Ancient Order of Druids in America, which was mm-hmm. almost defunct at the time. It had fewer than a dozen members, okay. and that was that. That was really the be- how things took off because. I inquired about joining. I had some conversations with the old the old people who ran it, and all of a sudden, with three months' notice, I found myself running the thing. The thing is, I was 30 years younger than the youngest other person in, in the order, yeah. and I was the first person who had expressed any interest in it in decades. <laughs> so it was, hey, you know, and and, and John Gilbert, who was the uh, the guy who brought me into it, right. he, he was also a mason. He had many connections in there. He knew that I had a lot of experience, and so his thought is, okay, let's see if you can do something with it. So that eight, 12 years of my life, getting the getting AODA up on its feet and and thriving as it now is. It is, certainly, yeah. But, but oh, you stopped doing that a few years ago, didn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in 2015, I figured after 12 years in the, in the big chair, I decided it was time to pass that on to someone else. Right. And um, I just, I had other things to do with my time and I just, it, it was time and, and there were plenty of good people in, in the line ready to go in. And so it's, it is, conti- I, I'm still, I mean, I'm still a member. And I'm still always available if, if anybody in the Grand Grover in the order needs me. But mm-hmm. they, they basically don't. They've been chugging along very well on their own. Okay. But so, yeah, so that, that was kind of how, how all that happened. 
when when I hear that there is kind of a baseline that returns all the time, uh, the Grange, I think you called uh, that order, mm -hmm. which I didn't know about. The Grange then uh, Druidry through OBOD already took you mm -hmm. in. Then came this part of your life. So at the very early stage, something that has very much relation to nature, to to mm -hmm. ecology, etc., was very present in your life. Now, what attracted what? Was it you and your personal? let's call it personal interest that attracted that type of order or was it the other way around? Well, it was mostly both. Um, I've ever since I was a child, the, mo the most powerful spiritual experience I've experiences I've always had have been in nature. Mm -hmm. um, that's just, uh, that's, that's simply always been the case. Um, when I went into churches as a child, I was, you know, sitting in this building and somebody was yammering about God and a you know, big deal. It was not a big deal out in the woods, in the mountains, by the sea. That's where the spiritual world came, has always come close to me. Mm -hmm. And so when I first, when I first found out that, that Obad was a going concern, that it, that existed, that you could actually study to become a druid, I was going, whoa, this sounds cool. <laughs> and so, and so I, I, you know, I, I joined that with great enthusiasm. Um, I ended up becoming a member of the Grange because at that time, um, the Odd Fellows only admitted only admitted men. Okay. 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 And um, although that has since changed, mm -hmm. and um, my wife Sarah was interested in doing something like that with me. She didn't want to just join a women's organization all on her own. She, you know, and so. Um, it so happened that downstairs in the Odd Fellows Hall in Ballard, in the Ballard neighborhood of Seattle, not far from where we lived, mm -hmm. um, was a Grange, <laughs> and so ah, one, okay. one of the one of the chapters. And so <laughs> we we wrote to them, got an application, and uh, found ourselves, mem you know, yeah, quite yeah. promptly as members of the Grange. So coincidence, but there are no coincidences. We know <laughs> belief in coincidence is the number one superstition of the age of science. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, so yeah, so there was, there was that connection and, and the whole druidry thing, the fact that it is a spirituality of nature that, that drew me very powerfully. Mm -hmm. And, but at the same time, as you say, there are no coincidences, you know, yeah. I, it drew, it drew me, I drew it. There, there was one sure. of these sort of mutual, mutual magnetism of ideas, and it happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I just saw because I looked it up while we were speaking. You were talking about uh, becoming a member, creating your own lodge, all of that. And the very first book uh, that I read by you was Inside a Magic Lodge, mm -hmm. which I think originally was published in 1998, um, mm -hmm. and I still have that first edition here, and. I just saw that it will be republished or has been. Oh, it's, it's out. It's just, it's just ah. recently the new edition. Um, the original publisher let it go after 25 years. Mm -hmm. And it took me less than a day to place it with another publisher. <laughs> I'm uh, not surprised. <laughs> I, I, was, I was very pleased. And so the new edition, I had a chance to update it on the basis of much more experience. Because, right. I mean, in 1998, when, well, I wrote it in 97. So yeah. in 97, um, I had been a member of three different lines. Lodges. I had been active for in, in the lodge thing for what would have been about four years. I knew a certain amount about lodges. 
<laughs> it's been a while. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the list, at this point, the list of the number of initiation ceremonies that I have received goes on for more than a page in fairly small print. <laughs> so I have a lot more experience with lodges, and I was able to refine some things, clear up some mistakes. And yeah. the, the new edition is, I think, a real improvement. Okay, I, I have to get it. In, but in any case, I just have to tell everyone out there who is interested in lodge life, lodge work and creating maybe an own group. Mm-hmm. This is really a really helpful book, I must say. I'm glad <laughs> to hear that. It, yeah, no. the, the, reason that I, the reason that I wrote it is there was nothing like it. Magical lodges, fraternal lodges, all these things had been a constant feature of, yeah. of life in, in most of the Western world as little as half a century ago. And... Now, <laughs> most people have never heard of them or they just have, you know, they just think, oh, yeah, those that's those people that wear the funny hats and make weird signs or it's the Freemasons <laughs> who are out to kill us all or, you know, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's bizarre. And yeah. and so there, there were no books on the subject that baffled me. And of course, my immediate thought was, "Ooh, I can write one. <laughs> but you must have had that sense several times in your life, because when mm-hmm. I scroll down the list of your books, which is quite long, I must say, and mm-hmm. I'm only talking about spirituality and occult for the moment and mm-hmm. um, uh, seeing things like um, peak oil. Well, that's not only peak oil and magic, the blood of the earth, mm-hmm. I think it was called by Scarlet mm-hmm. Imprint. I mean, Scarlet Imprint is known for doing very, very good and nice books. Um, mm-hmm. They did a what, gorgeous job with mine, yeah. Yeah, what, what, a great, what a great book and what a great title also. Or the book about that you wrote about um, sword, about swords, you know, helping mm-hmm. with the title, I don't remember. Um, or are you thinking, are you thinking of my translation of, of the... Um, Gerard Thibault's Academy of the yes, Sword. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh, it's, it's was... translation, but still, it's 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 very uh, oh, yeah. genuine. Uh, oh, oh, I I knew from the time that I was a kid that I wanted to be a writer. Um, partly because I like to write, and partly because um, I really did not want a nine to five job. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't I never got along well with that. So yeah, so I am you know I ha, I still have some old manuscripts of things that I tried to write when I was a good deal younger, mm-hmm. and many of them are really really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there there are people who ju- who have a talent for writing and they hit the ground running and their first manuscript flies out there and you know, and makes millions of dollars. I am not one of those people. I had how to learn start to write. How did it? How did it? How did you get published the first time? Okay. Um, what had what, what had happened is that I had spent years trying to break into print in science fiction and fantasy. That was my original passion. Okay. Uh, so I was writing these fantasy novels, these science fiction novels, sending them off to publishers and getting back rejection slips. Mm-hmm. I got rejection slips from all the best publishers, and. Um, so finally, after one more of those came back, I said, "Okay, I am." beating my head against a brick wall. Something is not working here. And so I took some ideas that I had about the, about the tree of life and about how, how the Kabbalah could be taught. And I wrote a book called Paths of Wisdom, and which yeah. was, you know, and, and I submitted that, I sent that off to um, a publisher, to, to one of the big occult publishers, mm-hmm. and I got back an acceptance letter. Huh. It was that fast. <laughs> and I was going, okay, clearly I've been barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> and, and so what happened, what, what I realized later, and this is something that any of our listeners who are writers will want to know about. Um, every year out of all the books that are published, 20% are fiction, 80% are nonfiction. Mm-hmm. 
every year out of all the manuscripts that are submitted by, by new writers, 80% are fiction. 20% are nonfiction. <laughs> so if you write fiction, you're one of the 80% chasing the 20%. If yes. you're writing nonfiction, you're one of the 20% chasing the 80%. You know how that works out in terms of your chances. Yeah. And so I, I found it very quickly that you can make it in nonfiction much more easily. And so that's what I did. I, I, Paths of Wisdom, I uh, followed that up with Circles of Power, with Inside a Magical Lodge. I just kept on you know, writing stuff because I wanted to be a writer and I had a lot of things to say about magic. Mm-hmm. And my early books, eh, they needed a little revision. Now I have, I have revised them. Each of the, the three that I've just named, all of them have been through substantial revision at this point. I was right. a little verbose, and um, I, there were things I had not yet learned about writing. But fortunately, in nonfiction, people are interested in the information more than the prose. Yes. But you know, as, as time went on, I just I kept on writing different things. Um, the the whole uh, the whole peak oil end of things that was a com- that was frankly a surprise to me. I started when, did, writing- when did that start? With, uh, okay. writing and and yeah. 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 Um, well, the thing is, I was into all that in the 1970s. Okay. Back during the back during the first energy crisis and so on, I read all the books. You were a teen, right? I, yeah. I was. I was. In my, I was. I mean, I was. I was uh, in 1973 when the when the first oil crisis began. I was 11 years old. Yeah. But I was a very literate, very interested in, in the world, 11 year old. I love to read. And I was, so I was grabbing magazines and reading about it. I was getting books and all this stuff. I was really fascinated. And I was, I was extremely interested to watch the way that the whole subject was deep sixed in the 1980s when it was just, oh no, we're not going to talk about that anymore. We're going to pretend that resources are infinite. Ronald Reagan's in the White House. It's morning in America and we are on vacation from reality. (laughs) So, so what happened then um, in 2006, I started a blog. This was, uh, this was three years after I'd become head of AODA. Uh, I was uh, with the title of Grand Arch Druid, and we were up to about 20 members at that point, and, uh, which was a, a serious improvement. And so, um, but I started a blog, um, my, my book, The Druidry Handbook, which is an introduction to that system, was, was on its way out and so on. And I, I started writing about various things, but very quickly, I, I was writing about, I was writing about the, the environmental situation. I was writing about energy. I was noting that the price of oil was ratcheting steadily upwards and everyone insisted, no, 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 it's going to go down shortly. <laughs> Not a chance. And so I started talking about all those things that I had been studying back in the seventies that nobody talked about. Mm-hmm. And the Archdruid Report, as the blog was called, went from being way out there on the fringes with, you know, maybe three or four people commenting a week mm-hmm. to this this sort of minor phenomenon where yes. I had hundreds of commenters and I had websites devoted to denouncing me. That was fun. <laughs> and and um, I was getting invited to peak oil events. You know, the, imagine here here you are at Washington D.C. and there's a big table, and on one side there's a retired U.S. congressman, and on the other side there's a petroleum executive, and in the middle is me and Archer. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very strange experience. How did you just then, survive? <laughs> no, I, I, I just, I just sort of smiled and, and said my piece. And, but I ended up doing this a lot 
during the during the peak oil period from about um, two thousand about twenty five to about uh, two thousand five to about uh, twenty ten, um, I was I, I was doing a lot of I was doing these these peak oil events. I was writing. I was invited by a publisher. I had not planned on writing a book on peak oil, and then uh, folks from New Society contacted me and said, "Hi, we would love to see a book from you." They did the same thing to most of the other hot peak oil bloggers at that time: Dimitri mm-hmm. Orloff, uh, Jim Kessler, and so on. Yeah. And so. So yeah, um, so that happened. <laughs> and, Amazing, you know, as they say, and then some other stuff happened. So they certainly did. Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about that part of your life because it's a fascinating part, which which also drew me in at the part. And the latest was the last book you wrote on that subject. I think was the Retro Future, right? Uh, it was the Retro Future? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that was. That, that was part of that was actually part of a three book series, although I don't think anybody else realized it. I did a book titled After Progress. After Progress, yeah. Dark Age America, discuss, number two. No, no. Well, yeah. well but after, after Progress was, was After Progress and the Retro Future and Retrotopia, my novel. One of my ah, novels. Ah, Those okay. three are actually all talking about the same thing from three different angles. Right. Right. And right. so, but yeah, the retro future was the last. By that time, the second peak oil or the second oil crisis was winding down. And the third one hasn't started yet. We have a year mm-hmm. or so, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that time, that whole thing was fading down. So I was, I was ramping up other stuff. And yeah, again, yeah. There, there's, there's no point in just kind of belaboring something when people people have convinced themselves they don't have to listen. And and of course, also at that point, um, peak oil stopped being fashionable. Everyone's wanted to start about talk about climate change instead. Yeah. And then it was plastics and then it was Donald Trump. And now it's the coronavirus. There's yeah, always yeah, got yeah. to be something to be pa- something to be terrified about and something that you can march around and protest about. So. Yeah. <laughs> Which we will talk about in, in, towards the end of the show, because there is lots of to be said about your last book. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, but um, I must say, personally, I was very impressed and influenced by what came out of the Art Reads blog, which was that mm-hmm. book that, you, that it was kind of a, a novel, uh, which which uh, but I think was in the initially just published published bits, um, fiction bits on the Art Reads blog, right? Okay. About, yeah, uh, Art Street's Tales, I think it's called, right? Okay. Well, actually, there, there I have three books that were published in bits on right. blogs. Okay? okay. There was there was an Art Street's Tales. Those are my short pieces. Mm-hmm. There was Stars Reach, which was a novel set in dark in in Dark Age America, in, in you know a future yeah. America, future roughly twenty four eighty. And then there was Retrotopia, which right. was. Um, which, which I have not read yet, I must oh, say. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. you, might, you might find that one interesting. I, mm-hmm. I wanted to mess with people's heads. There's, we have this fixation on progress. We have this delusion in our culture yes. that what's new must be better mm-hmm. and that we have to keep on doing newer and more complex and more exotic things even when they don't work as well as the things we used to have. Mm-hmm. And so we're progressing ourselves into a state of increasing dysfunction. Retrotopia imagined in the in the aftermath of, a, of an American Civil War. Gosh, who would have thought of that? Uh, <laughs> uh, in the aftermath of an American Civil War, the United States is broken up into several countries. And one of these countries pursues a policy of deliberate technological retrogression. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And thrives as a result of it. Um, I 
had a colorful time when, with that. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. No, but it was, it was fascinating to read that. And sometimes, sometimes, believe it or not, I think of those moments when you read the newspaper today. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I keep on telling people I did not write my fiction as, as like an instruction manual. Although the novel that I feel that way most about these days is Twilight's Last Gleaming. That's a yeah. um, a, a, tech, a military political thriller based on the idea that the United States is going to slam into a brick wall and break up. Mm-hmm. Um, it is... It's kind of the if you're familiar with the American writer Tom Clancy, who does all of these sure. all these endless dreary America triumphs over everything kind of things. This yeah. is the opposite. This is yeah, how people the, the counter Clancy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is the anti Clancy. People who and, and it assumes that America goes at the world with this Tom Clancy attitude and trips over its own feet repeatedly mm-hmm. and ends up breaking up into separate countries. Yeah. Um, and so many of the things that are described in there. Um, are in fact things that this country keeps on doing. And I'm going, this is not an instruction manual. This was meant as a cautionary tale, as a don't do this. But somehow that doesn't sink in. (laughs) Now, I'm not sure if I read that in one of your books, forwards or blogs, or if you wrote it to me in one of our email exchanges we had in the past, um, but you said you deliberately limit yourself to analyze the situation of the United States, because that's the part of the world, of course, which you know best, but you, mm-hmm. you don't want to, I don't know if you said you don't want to judge on other, on other parts of the world, or you don't mm-hmm. want to, to go into things you don't know enough about. Is that still the case or? Very, or? very, oh, very much so. Very mm-hmm. much so. The thing is, first of all, the last thing the world needs is one more clueless American telling them what to do. <laughs> we, I mean, how long have we, we, we have had that habit since, uh, since the end of World War II? And mm-hmm. I hope the rest of the world has figured out, don't listen to us. When an American comes in and says, oh, you ought to do this, pat him on his head and send him back home. Okay, (laughs) because most Americans are totally clueless about the rest of the world. Most Americans are totally clueless about their own country. Um, I I mean, it's I'm going to misquote Gandhi here, um, you know, and say, you know, when you talk about American civilization, the appropriate thing to say is that would be a really good idea someday. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, and the thing is, the thing is, there's actually been this tradition in occult writings for for, for um, well over a century now that mm-hmm. there will be an American civilization. There just hasn't been one yet. I mean, there were Native American civilizations, but sure. after those after those perished, you know, a civilization rising out of the present population of of, of Anglophone North America, we don't have one of those yet, and it's going to take the usual long sort of developmental curve, the sort of thing that happened in Northern Europe during the, um, you know, the many centuries before European culture, European civilization really began to come together. And so, um, but we're not there yet. And so, yeah, I've, A, I've only ever lived in the United States. I've visited a few other countries. I've visited Europe, but mm-hmm. I don't claim that spending a few weeks in a foreign country is enough to have a clue about it. Yeah. Um, the United States, I've lived in various parts of it. I know the country fairly well. I'm acutely aware of, it, of um, my culture's stupidities and, and some of the problems with it. And so I mostly focus on the, on the United States. Um, when people ask me, well, what about the rest of the world? I say, well, if you live there, maybe you should do some research yourself. Yeah. But there are also some strong points in that civilization, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, 
America has in the United States has enormous energy. Yeah, for example. And yeah. Yeah. when that energy finally coalesces into a coherent form and a coherent direction, I think it's going to accomplish amazing things. As it is, we flail a lot. But we've got amazing energy. We've got, um, we've got a conception of, of individual freedom that I think is, is very powerful. Yeah. And I think – and some of these sort of – some of the cultural things that we've had, which are sort of the first stirrings of a future American culture. And I, I note things like our literature, like jazz – Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah. you know the American culture is not just a white American culture. It is, it, it will be the the fusion of the peoples who have come here, one way or another, from all over the world. Yeah. And so the, there's a lot of cultural creativity here. It's just you know I, you know, with any luck, I can reincarnate sometime down the road and see how it works <laughs> out. But uh, as it is, you, you know, there's it. It is my culture. It is my country, and. I'm aware of its downsides. I'm aware of, of some of its upsides. I, I feel one of, one of the things I can do is try to encourage people, on the one hand, not to try to pretend to be European, and on the other hand, not to try to pretend to be the Roman Empire, because we're not that either. Well, neither, yeah. <laughs> yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Well, the problem when you talk to John Michael Greer is there is so many things you want to talk about, and he knows so many things also. You could go on and on and on forever, and I think I may promise you now and here that this is not going to be the last interview I did with John on the Thought Hermes podcast. So, But for now, um, let's take that little break that I promised to you, and of course, in John Michael's world, and we're going to hear more about his activities in the magical world himself um, in a moment. Uh, there is also a big bunch that plays into the Celtic lore and Celtic worlds. And, um, well, he has been speaking and will be speaking more about Obelt, the Order of Bards, Druids, and Ovates, and uh, Bards, Ovates, and Druids. Sorry, I got the order wrong here. And, um, well, one of uh, the famous people from the Obot is, of course, a great musician who has already been in a short interview uh, on this podcast. That's Dan DeBard from the UK. So I thought it might be a good idea to play a piece of music by Dan DeBard, and it's called The Cauldron Born. After the Cauldron Born, uh, we are going to return directly to John, to John Michael Greer, and listen to the second half of that fascinating interview. And at the end of the interview, there is our third piece of music for the day. And that's, uh, I would call it fantasy epic music. It's some kind of easy listening third piece, but it goes by the name of Initiation. And I think it's always great to speak and listen about initiation. So it's quite a fit. The music is composed and played by Ravarant, an artist from Greece, I believe. So, um, and we are going to hear his piece, Initiation. But now it's first Dan the Bard with The Cauldron Born. Set moon rise and see how the land is bathed 
colours of earth, sea and sky Dragon and fairy in shades of the night We call to our ancestors of blood and bone Of womb and tomb and standing Let's talk about John Michael Greer's um, occult activity. Not about the author, but uh, if he wants, if he wants, of course. Oh, sure. um, um, what are your personal attachments when you do your practice? What, what direction are you working at normally? Or does that change a lot? Or is it very widespread? Is it rather specific? Okay. Um, there, I, I've, Basically, there are two things going on with my occult practices at any time. There's my own process of, of, of personal development, which is primarily a matter of meditation. Mm -hmm. I, 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 have, I have a daily meditation practice. I've had a daily meditation practice for more than 40 years. Yeah. And there's a lot of that. And that, of course, the themes and subjects of that meditation change as, as I develop and as I pursue different angles. Sure. But there's that. There are certain other basic practices that are all focused on the, the core work of occult training, which is the development of, 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 the, of the individual self, the unfolding of, of the individual potential. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, you know, that's something that's shared by, by all different kinds of occult practices and they go about it in different ways. I've pieced together, um, my, my own system more or less, which is heavily influenced by the golden dawn, heavily influenced mm -hmm. by the schools of Druidry I've studied. Um, so there's that as kind of that, that's kind of the, the, the ground, the ground note, the base note that, um, underlies everything right. else. And beyond that, a lot of what I'm doing at any given time is developing a system that will take some particular set of, of ideas, some particular set of practices and so on, and prevent, present them in a form that allows other people to pick them up and use them. 
Okay. Um, partly, I'm a writer. I need to be writing about something. Sure. And one of the things that I, I noticed quite early on in my career is the best way to fail as a writer is to write the same book over and over again. <laughs> a lot of people do that. Bad yeah, idea. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm always doing developmental work. Um, and you, in fact, if you look at my sequence of, of books, um, instructional books on occultism, mm-hmm. you'll find that each one of them represents some period of my, of my developmental work. Um, okay. Paths of Wisdom, Circles of Power, um, those were the product of um, a whole bunch of years of work in the Golden Dawn system. Um, my books on geomatic divination, I, I happen, I, I, unlike most Americans, I took the time to learn some Latin and was able to <laughs> translate some, some old geomantic books yeah. and figured out how geomancy actually works mm-hmm. and got that into English for the first time. And, and also, but I also did, a lot, did and do a lot of practicing with that kind of, ge- of divination. Mm-hmm. And then you could just go step by step through my other books. You can see, okay, these are the ones that came out from the time that he spent doing um, doing a lot of work with Druidry. And yeah. here are the ones that come out of the, the, the five years I spent synthesizing the Druid, Druidry in the Golden Dawn tradition. And here, dot, 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 you just fill it in. Because I'm always doing something like that, partly because yeah, it interests yeah. me. Yeah. Partly because I like to teach and it's it's helpful to have something to teach that isn't just what I was teaching 20 years ago. And um, partly because it, it feels like an act of service to, okay. to work out these systems, to make them available, to present them to readers and, and to have people pick them up and run with and go, cool, I can do stuff with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Druid and the, 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 the Golden Dawn parts, they are quite obvious when one reads the the books or even the titles of your books. The one that fascinated me because it made an, uh, an amalgamate of the two is the Celtic, mm-hmm. you say Celtic or Celtic, I don't know, Golden Celtic. Dawn, Celtic, Celtic Golden Dawn, um, uh, which I think is a fascinating I don't, I don't know. It's not, of course, not a mix-up, but a, a, a complete um, a, a marriage between the two systems, mm-hmm. isn't it? Well, now, and the thing with that is that I didn't come up with that idea. Okay. What happened back in the, in the early 20th century? Okay, um, we're in we're in England. We are in um, the occult community in England. As the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn was blowing itself to smithereens by yeah. internal poli- political squabbles, and it was very much like one of those explosions on movies with things falling, flying this way and flying <laughs> that way, and flames billowing out. You know, metaphorically speaking, and, and yeah. crowds of refugees running in every direction. Yeah. Um, there were certainly a lot of people who quit the Golden Dawn at that point, but they also wanted to find um, some other way to practice an interdirected spirituality. And it so happened that right about that time, the Druid scene in Britain was very calm. It's not always. There have been times when it's been quite colorful, but it was very calm. And there were these various Druid organizations around that were practicing Druid spirituality and doing rituals. And a lot of these refugees from the Golden Dawn ended up in various druid groups that joined oh, the really? universal I didn't so know that okay mm-hmm. yeah a lot of people don't but a lot of them ended up there and wouldn't you know within a very short time you started seeing these um dru- these hybrid druid hermetic organizations like the the kabbalistic order of druids and the ancient order of druid hermetists and the nuada and merlin temples of the golden dawn and things like this 
So there were people coming up with this, this synthesis. And, well, then the Second World War happened, and then Wicca came out and became all the rage. Sure. And nearly all of these things just kind of faded out because n- nobody was interested in, in that sort of old-fashioned occultism. They all wanted to take their clothes off and dance nakedly around in, you know, in, in, the, in the coven and, and you know, have some cheap sex and do the, the various other things that people were doing in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very irritated by this because I was thinking, okay, I love Druidry, I love the Golden Dawn. It really sucks that there is no that, that none of these systems have that fuse the two have survived. And I was going, okay, I've got the basics. I'm going to reverse engineer it, and that's what I did. So I buckled down and I I, I worked out what could have been the curriculum of one of these hybrid groups in the 1920s mm-hmm. and practiced it and tested it and did all that sort of stuff and then published the book and, and got a small organization together, which, which currently works with it. And oh, really? it works very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. And, I, I, and I tried I, a few things myself, to be honest. I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. yeah. Because, because my, my personal system is also very close to the Golden Dawn being solitary and mm-hmm. the other right. So mm-hmm. it was really helpful to me. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. But yeah, and, and there's, let's see, there are two other books actually that tie into that. There's the thing called The Mysteries of Merlin, which yeah. is a set of seasonal yeah. rituals that tie, you yeah. that work with the same magical system. Mm-hmm. And there's also my book on the Colbrin, the Welsh kind of quasi-runic alphabet, and that's yeah. actually designed to mesh with that also. There will be okay. some others. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there will be. <laughs> hey, I'm a writer. I've got to have something yeah, to write. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and we, we are readers and we wait for that. So now there is a special type of book that I'm going to ask you because because that's also like a pattern. There are those, It's more to me, it's more than translations. We touched on the Gerard Thibault, but there are others. They're more, the, the Israel Regard, the re-edition, is of course not a translation, re- mm. re-edition of the big, the, the big brick, as we all call it. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. The Golden Dawn uh, book by by Rigardi. then we have the we have the translation uh, of of the picatrix that that you did mm-hmm. you chris, uh, well chris chris warnock and i did that yeah yes mm-hmm. but you did it together didn't you didn't you oh yeah yeah most um just over half of my translations actually have been have been joint work like that so, right yeah. right but then we have the elementary treaties of occult science which papus has also kind of words to say in mm-hmm. it um so there is there is those big classics you know uh, mm-hmm. you, i just mentioned a few but there are many more that you translate but you do more mm-hmm. to them than just translate them or, or is this just an impression i have because i'm a fan <laughs> well well the thing is a good translation needs to have a good introduction. It needs mm-hmm. to have footnotes. It needs to have references. Right. Because, I mean, if you pick up the Picatrix, okay, there's no way that you can just, just pick up this thing and understand it the way people understood it in, in the year 1100. Exactly. And because we, we come out with a completely different cultural setting. We come out, yep. we don't have the same intellectual background. And so when Chris and I did the Picatrix, our, our goal was to make it accessible, to make it usable so okay. that occultists could actually pick the thing up and run with it. And in fact, they have. It's been, it's sold like hotcakes. Lots of people are using it. In the same way, uh, doing my translation, well, my, my translation with Mark Mikituk, we did, we translated uh, Eliphas Levy's Doctrine and Ritual of High Magic. Exactly, exactly. And, yeah. yeah, and that's that's a brilliant book. Unfortunately, the previous English translation was by Arthur Edward Waite. And Waite had many virtues, but he could not write an interesting sentence to save his life. And and the crucial problem was that he was bitterly jealous of Eliphas Levy. 
he did not like the man. And he filled, his translation is incomplete. It leaves things out. It gets things wrong. And he's constantly putting these sneering little footnotes saying, well, that's not correct. And so on. (laughs) It was really quite nasty. And and it's really, it's, it's, it, Taking a book that is everywhere else in the Western world, people go to Levy first. In the German-speaking world, in the Italian-speaking world, of course, all over the Francophone world. And in the English-speaking world, Wait was just sitting there like a brick wall saying, no. So we fixed – so Mark and I fixed that. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot that has to go into developing the – working the footnotes and a good introduction so that people know what they're getting into. but that's 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 really part of what any translator ought to be doing, and so sure, you know I have my own, I have my own preferences. I, I know what kind of translations I like, so that's the kind that I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Well, I, I was lucky enough to read Elephas Levy in French, so so I didn't come mm-hmm. across it. But but <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I'll take, I'll take well, I, I also I also prefer to read him in French, but not. of course in America, of course. Yeah, you know, I, I have no idea why Americans are so terrified of learning another language. It's really sad. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. You must. You must tell me why. Um, in any case, there is this this, this new new. Uh, I gather it will be quite a long uh, um, series of articles on your blog Ecosophia, where you're discussing the Lefes Levy now mm-hmm. in, oh, yeah. in depth, right? Yeah, we're, we're going to we're going to go chapter through chapter, chapter by chapter through the entire doctrine ritual mm-hmm. high magic. Yeah, and um, I, I expect to have a good time. We just I'm finished sure. spending what three years on, on the, uh, the unfortunate, the, cos- yeah. the cosmic doctrine, yeah. Yeah, well, and so this is going to yeah. this this is going to keep us going for let's see forty six months. Okay, well, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, the next four years all planned ahead. <laughs> exactly, it's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it sounds sounds like sounds like a great thing. Mm-hmm. Then there are other other things which are surprising in your book list. For example, the UFO phenomenon. Um, uh, um, that's I think twelve years back or so that book, but um, although that that's also been reprinted, that's also just recent. I have a new edition of that out titled uh, really? um, "The UFO Chronicles," uh-huh. and I was able to update that because uh, there have been a number of things made public since I originally wrote that actually helped support my thesis, and okay. that that was that was a fun book. I mean, the thing is, remember again, as I said, I was interested in everything weird when I was a kid. I was very much into UFOs. And I figured out even then that the two canned excuses for what's going on, either they must be alien spacecraft or you didn't see that at all. There was something wrong (laughs) with that. And so, you know, it's it's a complicated thing because there's more than one thing going on that gets lumped together in UFOs. But one of the things that I ended up discussing in great detail was the way that the United States Air Force manufactured the UFO hysteria. As a, as a means of protective camouflage, so a way to camouflage its own flight tests of things like the U-2, the SR-71, the early spy satellites, mm-hmm. um, the stealth planes. Um, many of our listeners may remember the, the period when um, UFOs suddenly were black triangles. Now, what is it that looks like a black triangle in the air? Gosh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> 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 and but yeah, which is chronicling the way that the Air Force manufactured the, this whole hysteria um, in exactly the same spirit that before the Normandy invasion of World War II, um, the U.S. and British militaries invented a fake army with inflatable tanks and empty barracks to to fake out the Germans. Um, right. To fake out the Wehrmacht and so right. on. That same spirit three years later got put into, um, you know, inventing fake aliens. 
Okay. Okay. I see what you mean. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Funny. Um, and and before we come to the king of or in orange um before we come to that now finally um i have to have a few sentences from you about the weird of holly because holly. Um, uh, holly yes of course mm -hmm. because seven volumes in a year and a half uh, a, a writing rush you would call that i did not <laughs> i did not plan that I did. I honestly did not plan that. But in 2015, yeah, I, I mentioned a little earlier in our talk that I, I really loved science fiction and fantasy. I had originally wanted yeah. to write that. I had written a few books in and among there, um, some of them, as mentioned, on the blog. Mm -hmm. And then in the spring of 2015, I basically had a novel download itself into my brain okay. uh, intact. And I hammered out 70,000 word manuscript in eight weeks. I have never written anything that quickly, but it was there. It was just thump. Mm -hmm. And that was the first book in that series. Okay. And so I kept on writing them. And I ended up writing 11 novels in that, in that fictive universe where basically it's the world of H.P. Lovecraft stood on its head. The tentacle yeah, horrors, mm -hmm. the, the horrors of the good guys. <laughs> the bad guys are a cult of are a cult of mad rationalists who want to make all that yabber about man's conquest of nature into a bloodstained reality, and so it's just this this wild romp. I borrowed all over the all of H.P. Lovecraft's writings, his friends, and all the other people who contributed to his Cthulhu mythos. I, there's these constant borrowings in there. It was it was a lark to write. But it's it's out. It is. Um, well, you, you probably did thirty years of research without doing research, but just by reading it, these books, right? I grew up. I grew up with. I mean, I, I think when did I read my? I must have read my first H.P. Lovecraft story when I was like eleven, yeah. and I, I I liked Lovecraft. I thought I thought I did not find him scary. I don't find him scary. I don't uh, think scary either, no. the tent no, no. Yeah, the tentacled horrors and the, the mysterious, you know. Well, partly as an occultist, you know, the, these sinister robed figures that worship the great old ones that are all mm -hmm. over Lovecraft. I'm one of those people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm, I, I'm on the side of the tentacled horrors already. So, right. so right. his stuff doesn't scare me at all. It's, oh, yeah, I know this stuff. And exactly. then, yeah, yeah. and so, yeah, so I was, I had all of this material that had sort of, that I had without, as you say, without intending to do any research, I simply absorbed it from reading mm. all of this golden age, weird fantasy and out it came tentacles and all. <laughs> and, and, and just to reassure any of our listeners um, who, who might be curious in the last book of the series, great Cthulhu does in fact rise from the sea. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not. I am not going to do the tease sort of thing where you leave things hanging. No, the great old ones awaken. It, it's you know um, the whole thing. It's cool. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. But the thing is, so many people just kind of dangle that and then snatch it away. No, no, no. I, if you're going to promise a tentacled horror from the abysses of time, deliver it's like, you know, the, the, what was it? Was it Chekhov? There's the, you show the gun in the first act, it has to be fired in the third. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, if yeah. you show the tentacled horror in the first novel, it's got to rise from the sea in the last volume. That, of course. <laughs> everybody expects that, of course. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's only fair.
<laughs> now everybody expected that we now speak about your latest book, of course. About and, the King and in Orange. King Speaking in Orange. of Lovecraftian horror, yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so why don't you give us a, a little explanation introduction first what this book is about because okay and uh, without doing spoiling but just to without to, doing spoiling sure yeah the basic the, the right about the time i was beginning to write the weird of holly um as many people remember um an eldritch horror from um the abysses of something or other descended a golden escalator <laughs> um, in the United States and launched his campaign for president. Yeah. And in response, in a very Lovecraftian fashion, about half the United States went stark staring crazy. Yeah. And the, the entire panoply of events in the Trump years were really, to borrow a line from one of the favorite books of my youth, a few years in the absolute elsewhere. People behaved very strangely, weird accusations, paralogical behavior, total irrationality. And we're just talking about the Democrats, mind you. Um, the Republicans <laughs> had their own strangeness. Yeah. Um, it was a weird time. There was a lot of magic flying around on both sides. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of you know, unspeakable truths, things you don't talk about in modern America that are, in fact, the most important things going on in modern America. And so when I when I set out to write this book on on the Trump years, on the Trump phenomenon, what happened and why, of course, the thing that came to mind, partly because I was saturating my, my mind in, in Lovecraftian stuff, was um, Robert W. Chambers' story, the stories in the, the book, The King in Yellow. Yes, because they have well. that same quality of the world just going crazy. Exactly. And Can you, you just give, give a little, little background on that King in Yellow? Because I think it's crucial to understand the title, but more than mm -hmm. that, all those quotes that you yeah. have. So the, the idea, the idea in, in Chambers, in all the Chambers stories in this, in this particular collection, because it's an anthology, yeah. the idea in these stories is that our world is this kind of thin veneer over another reality, the reality mm -hmm. of Carcosa, the kingdom of the King in Yellow, where, mm -hmm. where black stars hang in the sky. And, um, and what happens in each of these stories is that the world we think we know kind of shimmers and becomes transparent and some sending from the King in Yellow comes through or something having to do with Carcosa comes into manifestation. Of course, people go mad and they die and all the usual stuff. And so that reminded me so much of the Trump years. <laughs> and watching people you know descend into gibbering noise about Repo about you know Russians Russians everywhere yeah, yeah, or yeah. you know insisting that that um when black people vote for Trump as of course many of them did that had to be a function of racism what yeah, yeah. and there was a lot of really bizarre mm -hmm. really delusional thinking and it has not gotten any better since uh, the election was more or less decided no, um, yeah. things are things are very strange in this country right now yeah and yeah. I think and and so my book is an attempt to look at the underlying causes of the strangeness to talk about the things in American society that Americans do not want to talk about do not want to hear you know what is actually going on with our economy what is actually going on with the working class what is actually going on with our society? Why are we stuck in a set of narratives that don't work, but everyone keeps cycling back to them? 
I must say something now about uh, the the extra American part, which because of course me as a European, I read that book probably mm -hmm. uh, a bit differently, mm -hmm. and um, uh, it is when 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 I read that I recognize so many things. Of course, we cannot talk mm -hmm. about Trump, but Trump has caused other upheaval here in Europe, with, and mm -hmm. uh, the media are almost sad that he's gone because now what do they get his hast hysterical about, it, right? <laughs> but but well, um, I figured that's what the virus is for. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> something now but um on on the other hand um many of the analysis because there's much much in-depth analysis of the situation mm -hmm. when i think about the four the four layers of, of the main the main mm -hmm. main parts of the american uh, um uh, society so to speak mm -hmm. right with yeah, people it, etc exactly and it's an analysis that is so true worldwide at least in big parts of the western world let's put it mm -hmm. that way don't want to judge but an uh, enormous no. yeah but an enormous number of people do not want to talk about the the idea that it's not that not gender not race not ethnicity or religion but class but mm -hmm. income level is actually a major fault line in our society. Absolutely. And not, please note, not in the Marxist sense that the heroic working class is going to rise up and do what we yeah. tell them to so we can seize power in their name, the basic yeah, Marxist yeah, shtick, yeah, yeah, but just yeah, the fact yeah. that there are these conflicts. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that the if you understand these conflicts, you understand what's actually going on. And if you understand why the salary class, the managerial class, does not want to talk about class. Mm -hmm. And if you understand what has been done to the wage class, the ordinary working class, yeah. which used to be fairly prosperous and mm -hmm. is not now. And why is that? How does that happen? How does that work out politically? I mean, we're, we're watching... I, to the extent that I can that, you know, that I can get clear news um, of what's going on elsewhere in the world here in America, you know, which is which yeah. is of course limited by what I can find on the internet and so on. Um, but yeah, the same the, these same things are they're playing out in Britain, where they explain a lot of what's happened with the with the conservatives and, and the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah um, they're playing out in France right now, where where Macron is is sinking like a rock. Um, they're playing out in uh, all kinds of European countries yeah. because the same basic underlying structure of events has happened. The same shift in relationship between classes and the wage class is fed up. And the managerial class can't let itself think about what's actually happening in mm -hmm. a way so that they could deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. And um, uh, I really encourage people, not not Americans, there are a few who listen to this podcast, even though 85% are American, I warn you. But uh, <laughs> um, um, uh, but uh, those who are not, go and get that book. It's not a book about Trumpism in the, in the first degree. It is much more in-depth. Uh, it uses the possibility to mm -hmm. talk about them. I hope you agree on what I'm saying. No, um, yeah, no it's, it's primarily a book on how how societies are founded on magic. Magic Absolutely. understood as the art and yeah. science of causing change in consciousness and according to will. Exactly. Yeah. And, be, and all of our societies, Ioan uh, uh, Coliano, uh, the Romanian-American yeah. um, scholar yeah. of religions, yeah. said brilliantly in Eros and Magic of the Renaissance, we don't, we don't need jackboots at this point. What we have are magician states where people are manipulated by magical means to think that there's no alternative to the present. The, the present dysfunctional order. But apart from Culliano and John Michael Greer, I haven't <laughs> heard that's being said like that. I mean, of <laughs> course, uh, we are 
is never called magic. Let's put it that way. Oh yeah, wow. of course, and it's never called magic. But in fact, you know, it's when when you're convincing people to buy, say, fizzy brown sugar water, mm. which does nothing for you but rot your teeth and empty your your bank your your mm. pocketbook, mm. you're convincing them. Look, look at look at an advertisement someday. Just go out, go out and look at the nearest billboard you might see. It's it doesn't have anything to do with the product. You know, here's these these people, the this group of young, handsome or beautiful, uh, young, attractive people. They're clutching mm. cans of fizzy brown sugar water and having a great time. It's a spell. Yes. It's meant to make you think subconsciously that if only you clutch these cans of fizzy brown sugar water, you will be attractive and young and nicely dressed and showing all these class symbols of wealth. And of course, we all know that's not true. Yeah. yeah. You know, advertisement is a form of magic designed to make you stupid. Without now spoiling too much, but I love mm-hmm. that passage where you compare Victorian um, Victorian problems with sexuality with today's problems with hate. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I really yeah. like that one. I will, I will, I will hand out one phrase, mm-hmm. the one one sentence which I have used before online, so it's not that much of a spoiler. Hate is the new sex. Yeah, the attitudes are so <laughs> close; it is not funny. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. Now you, John Michael, you said you are a writer and you certainly are. And so you have at least 20 plans uh, in your, in your drawer out of which 10 (laughs) will be published, I hope in the next year. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Forthcoming projects. Um, I am doing, let's see, what do I have coming out right now? Um, Let's see, from Inner Traditions, the same outfit that's doing, um, the, that's yeah. pub- about to publish The King in Orange, I have a book on, on astrology that focuses on Pluto and what it means yeah. that Pluto has had its career as a planet and now is a dwarf planet. It's mm-hmm. talking about certain, basically changes in collective psyche as reflected in the rise and fall of Pluto. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no idea what they'll end up titling it. My working title was, um, uh, what was my working title? My, but anyway, they, they changed <laughs> it. I know. I don't remember what it was, but it yeah. will have the word Pluto in it somewhere. Um, so we have, so that's coming out. Um, I have, I have a role playing game based really? on the weird of Holly. Oh. I was approached wow. by a role playing game publisher. They said, we think this would make a great RPG. So this is like Dungeons and Dragons, like that's, any of those tabletop role playing games. Yeah. But you, you know, you two can be can join the side of the tentacled horrors, come come out of the tentacle closet, and you know, go um, scampering across the hills in your Arkham, being chased by armed gunmen. How fun! <laughs> um, so that's going to be out later this year. Um, I have. Um, I'm not sure about. I'm not sure what novel will happen next. I have. I have several projects partly done. We'll see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm currently working on some ideas for a system of occult training that doesn't really emphasize ceremonial magic as much as most of my earlier ones have. Mm-hmm. And so that's it's, it, it primarily focuses on sacred geometry, and the title is The Golden Section Fellowship. And that oh, will be okay. um, there, um, the first two books of that are now in the hands of the publisher. So that's kind of that, that's kind of the ones that come immediately to mind. I also have again a stack of other things which will be surfacing in due time. Yeah, sure, great. <laughs> well, if you could, um, if you didn't have to listen to any publisher or to any audience or whatever, if you could mm-hmm. write 
a book. Um, maybe let me, let's say two books, one in fiction and one in nonfiction, right? Um, could, you, could you tell us what you would really do with that, what you would write? Well, well I, I'm, probably, I'm probably going to do those precisely because at this point, I, I, I have enough, of a na enough name recognition that I could probably write and publish anything. That's great. So the, the, the thing that I'm thinking of in terms of fiction I want to do a, a novel of magic where all the magic is real. All the magic is the stuff that people can actually do. Okay. And okay. so it, be set, it will not be set in some kind of marvelous world of fantasy, quite the contrary. It be set in this world with ordinary people, some of whom practice magic. Mm -hmm. And it would it kind of give the magician's view of what is life like? If you are if you are a practicing occultist, what it, like some what of us the, play, play musical instruments, you mean? Exactly, yeah, exactly. But mm -hmm. you know, and there are some really good novels about musicians. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, this, sure. yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's what I think. I, that, that's and that's in fact one of the things I have in, I have potentially in the works. Um, in terms of nonfiction, that's I'm actually having to scramble a little bit at this point because I've written so many books that I've, I've covered most of the ground that I wanted to write. 20 years ago, I, said, I would have said, I want to write a book that talks about the fact that progress is a myth, not a reality. But I wrote that after progress yeah. is, is my book on that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, at one point, I, I, years ago, I would have told you, I want to write a book about polytheism. I want to talk about how it makes more sense to talk about many gods than one. I've got that one out too. So at this point, I think the the, the target that I have that I'm sort of aiming at for for my old age is a book on the philosophy of magic, a book okay. that, that really kind of focuses on what does the world have to be like mm -hmm. in order for magic to work the way it does. Yeah. What does it tell us about the world that we experience things in these ways when we practice meditation, we do divination, we practice ritual magic. So that, and that, that one probably, yeah, I mean, I can probably find a publisher for it, but no, they'll be holding, be. they'll be holding their nose because, you know, it's going to be long, <laughs> it's going to be erudite, it's going to be dense and it, yeah. it, it will not sell like hotcakes. Yeah. Well, well you, you will find someone. Additional uh, question yeah, sure. to that. If you spoke, if you were able to translate from any language in the world, right? Um, mm -hmm. Would there be a book that you really would love to translate into English because you can do it? Oh, that's a tight one. Um, the problem is almost that there are so many. Uh, mm -hmm. There are... Um, English has a very narrow range of magical literature. Okay. There just aren't that many. So much of what is what we have is it's either dependent on the Golden Dawn or it's dependent on neo-paganism. It's not much more than that. Okay. I mean, there are a few things here and there. We have our new thought stuff. But when you get, for example, into the kind of Central European magical traditions that Franz Bartholin Mm -hmm. um, exemplifies. I mean, he's he's practically the only writer we've got. Uh, Franz Barton and Georg Lomer are really, I yeah. think, as far as I know, the two yeah. the two Central European occult writers of modern times that have had anything translated into Europe. And there are hundreds yeah. of volumes yeah. that are yeah. really good stuff. I would love to see the collected works of Robert Ambelin, the French writer. Yeah, I'd love to see those sure. in English. His sure. stuff is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and and we're not even to- I'm not even getting yet into what's available in Arabic, what's available in Sanskrit, what's yeah, available in Chinese and Japanese. That's why it was extending to other languages. Yes, exactly. I, yeah. How would one choose? Yeah. Yeah, probably. yeah. Yeah, I just I, I kind of I, I grab what I can from the languages that I know and um, see what I can put into English. And and then manage for 20 other lives and then we'll talk about the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. let's see, I can schedule let's see, I'm gonna schedule German for my next life. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then Greek for the like after life after that. Okay, got you, got you. <laughs> Well, uh, John Michael, it was really a great, great pleasure to have you here. And I just would like to have from you a kind of final word to our audience, to those people who are out there listening and who love magic, who love the occult. Mm -hmm. Do you have a a message to them? I I do. Um, So often people, people like us, people out on the fringes, are end up feeling as though what we're doing really doesn't matter to anybody but ourselves. That's not true. Because, as I've argued, that the, the the world around us is being shaped by magic, by the crass corporate magic of advertisements and so on. What we are doing in studying magic, learning magic, practicing magic, sharing it with others is actually incredibly important. It's the one effective way out of the trap that so many people are caught in. So, uh, keep you know, keep at it. Very important phrase. Very nothing to add. Just a thank you. Great thank you, and it was lovely to thank you be together finally. (laughs) And thank you very much for having me on. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Bye now. Okay.
Initiation by composer and performer Ravarant, who is from Greece, and he wrote that lovely piece of music for us. Right, and this was a wonderful, wonderful hour that we passed in the company of my friend John Michael Greer. And I really enjoyed that. I think you could feel that. Um, and I hope you enjoyed too and that you learned just as many things as I did and as I do every time I speak to those people that we meet here on the show. So I hope you are going to have also a good week because we are going to be back in a week again. And as much as it was a pleasure to have you here with me today, I do hope that we will hear each other again next week. Do not forget to send me your feedback if you have any. Do not forget also to maybe push that little donation button if you have time. And well, and come back here next week and I'm going to tell you now who is going to be my guest next week on the show. The subject actually is not completely unrelated to what we just heard because the subject will be the power of language. And my guest is a young uh, gentleman from the United Kingdom by the name of Jack Fox Williams. He is from University Goldsmith University in London and he has a lot to say about things like general semantics and magic about Robert Anton Wilson etc etc I think it's going to be fascinating right that will be next week and um, that will be on May the 30th right thank you so much for listening here today come back next week and for the time being have a Good week, stay safe and stay healthy and take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.